Hello and welcome to another episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie, brought to you by Killer Podcasts and Evergreen Podcasts Network. I'm the titular Sean. And I'm the very titular Carrie. It's the show that takes you inside the unbelievable, the unexplainable, the macabre, and the bizarre and tries to find an answer. Hello, wife. Hi. (laughs) Uh, Carrie, this week we're back in the world of true crime, but I'm taking us all the way back to Beijing 1937. Okay. Because this week's case is a stone-cold whodunit that comes to us from pre-World War II China. On January 8th, 1937, the horribly mutilated body of 19-year-old Pamela Werner was found within a few miles of her family's home in Beijing. And at the time, the police tried to investigate, but ultimately they ended up losing the thread amid the chaos of a city full to bursting with war refugees and besieged from the outside by foreign invaders. Now, despite several leads, the case was ultimately left unsolved and largely forgotten amid the larger chaos of World War II, which of course would kick off just after this, certainly especially in China. But several new leads have emerged within the past 20 years, or at least several new explanations for the case. Interesting. I've never even heard of this. Uh, Yet, basically no one had until a couple of books were written about it since the year 2000, since the year 2010, really. Hmm. Um, So let's talk about Beijing 1937, because it is not only a foreign country, but a foreign time. Uh, In 1937, Beijing was a fascinating, sad, very scary place, um, then still called Peking in Western languages. I was curious why that was, by the way. Apparently, um, a lot of the names given to Chinese cities were given to them. The Western names were originated with the French when there were French missionaries there like 400 years ago. Mm-hmm. And um, since then, the Mandarin pronunciations have changed. The language actually changed so that that, um, sorry, that J in Beijing used to be pronounced kind of like a hard C or a K. Mm-hmm. So the Chinese name back then for Beijing would have been Beijing or something like that. And um, so, you know, the white people got it wrong, but not as wrong <laughs> as you would assume when they, but, they, but yeah, they just continued calling it Peking because that's what white people called it until uh, pretty recently. Hmm. So I thought that was kind of interesting. Peking, as any Englishman there would have called it in 1937, was, as I said, a fascinating but scary place. I think it would make a great setting for a Coen Brothers style like, what's the point of all this crime drama or um, some kind of a postmodern, poor taste Quentin Tarantino thing could be could be done here. There's a lot of interesting elements in this city. Um, Beijing had been the capital until very recently, but in 1937, it was no longer the capital um, because Kuomintang, and oh, by the way, pronunciations, I will be, <laughs> I'm, I'm out at sea here for a lot of this, so I'm going to do my best. But the leader of the Kuomintang, which is is and was a nationalist Chinese party, kind of the main opposition to the communists throughout uh, 20th century history. Mm-hmm. Uh, their leader was Chiang Kai-shek at the time, and he had moved himself, the base of the government and the capital, therefore, uh, to Nanjing after the Northern Expedition. That's where Kai-shek had joined together with the Chinese Communist Party to fight off warlords that were still holding a bunch of territory up north and reunify the country. I remember that name from history class. Yeah, Chiang Kai-shek's a very famous figure. Um, and he had moved... The Northern Expedition was like 10 years ago at this point. 
and he and the communists, the Kuomintang and the communists, had been fighting each other ever since for <laughs> control of China. So it was like, put our weapons down, we, we fight these warlords up north, and then we immediately assassinate and, and uh, uh, kill each other for the next 10 years. However, in 37, the, the nationalists and communists had recently put aside their differences, laid down arms, and joined forces once again to fight a common enemy, in this case, the encroaching Japanese army. Um, although Kaishek only agreed to this after some communists held him hostage for two weeks, so it was sort of a forced friendship. Yeah. But he was now nominally allied with Mao Zedong and the People's Liberation Army against the uh, incoming Japanese. Mm-hmm. You see, the Japanese had sort of owned a big chunk of northern China, a region called Inner Manchuria, uh, ever since they had invaded in 1931. And that invasion, um, this seems to be kind of a pattern with Japanese military operations in the 30s. Um, they invaded Manchuria because there was there were Japanese railroads already, Japanese companies operating operating private railroads, and um, the Japanese army was moving through there one day when they said the Chinese army or Chinese nationalists had blown up some dynamite near one of the railroad tracks. wasn't even enough dynamite to like damage the railroad really, but Japan used this as an excuse to launch a massive invasion of Manchuria and take the uh, country for itself. By the way the League of Nations would later investigate and call this whole thing bullshit. Like, it was a total false flag operation. Some Japanese uh, army guys just just blew up some dynamite near a train track and said, ah, we have to invade now. Yeah, I mean, false flags do happen. That's why they become conspiracies, because we know that they've happened before in, in all different kinds of places. And as far as the historical record has it, it seems like this was just this one army, like this regional army, just acting on its own. And the government types back in Tokyo were actually surprised and uh, bewildered that they were now invading Manchuria. Yeah. But they had no choice but to go through with it, and they had now turned inner Manchuria into Manchuko, Hmm. which was a puppet state with the last uh, previous emperor of China who had been deposed, a guy named Puyo, uh, was sitting as the figurehead of this little fake country. Um, But even the League of Nations, which was still kind of getting its footing and never would get its footing, uh, officially recommended not recognizing Manchuko's legitimacy as a country. And certainly China did not recognize Manchuko's legitimacy as a country. Was the League of Nations like a precursor to the United Nations? Yes, that was uh, Woodrow Wilson's big dream for creating a world peace after World War I. Mm. Um, It failed. Partly because Japan uh, pulled out after this investigation of the, like various countries pulled out of the League of Nations after the League returned decisions they didn't like. <laughs> yeah. And Japan was one of the first to go like, this isn't going to work for us anymore. Hmm. Now, getting back to Beijing, everyone, every nation with legations, which uh, was the time... At the time, that was the term for, like, delegates and ambassadors, your dignitaries. Everyone with dignitaries in Beijing were allowed to keep armed guards at specific points along the railway throughout China. Mm -hmm. Because you had to guard your um, diplomats, right? So these other countries, other countries are operating in the same area. You don't want them kidnapping your diplomats. So you have a couple of guys there, armed guards. Now, in 1937, Japan was in the process of beefing up its complement of guards along the railway... Uh, to the tune of over a couple of months, they would go from like 7,000 troops in the country to 15,000 troops 
um, by July later this year, when the Imperial Japanese Army finally bullied Chinese nationalists into a fight at Wanping, which is just over 10 miles away from our story, so very close to here, and kicked off the Second Sino-Japanese War with the so-called Marco Polo Bridge Incident, which was another thing where it seems like the Japanese army kind of invented a provocation and then like yelled about it until they got into a fight, sort of. So, okay. So it's kind of an MO. <laughs> um, ultimately, the Second Sino-Japanese War was uh, horrible. It was a brutal and bloody scrum, and it would eventually be swallowed up into the larger brutal, bloody chaos of the Second World War. But when Pamela Werner died, the Marco Polo Bridge incident was still almost six months out, and it was only the threat of war that gripped Beijing in early 1937, because the nearest detachment of Japanese soldiers was camped within miles of the imperial city. Hmm which is the older kind of inner part of uh, the city. Mm-hmm. Now, despite being no longer the capital, Beijing was still one of the richest cities in China at this time. Um, it is now. I think it's like ninth or 10th, but at the time it was the third richest city. Um, the Japanese army, however, was beginning to choke some trade from the nearby rails, just kind of scaring away shipments with their so-called military exercises. Mm-hmm. And according to Paul French, who is the author of our main source, I would say main source for today, Midnight in Peking, uh, a 2011 book that kind of revived interest in this case, French says the Japanese army were also secretly funding and supporting drug dealers to accelerate the worsening conditions and morale deterioration inside the city, or at least Chinese officials believed that that was happening. Interesting. Um, whether it was true or just rumors, people were aware, very aware is the point, of the Japanese troops that were camped nearby. Every second of every day, you just don't, you know why they're there, right? You just don't know when they're coming. And so most of the people... Stressful. <laughs> yeah. For everyone living in Beijing, this probably felt like the end of the world could be coming at any moment. The results of war elsewhere in the world was plain in the condition of, of residents' new neighbors, who were largely refugees from wars and atrocities across the continent. Uh, there were many Chinese refugees fleeing devastation uh, from many, I mean, probably some still dehomed from the Northern Expedition and all the battles there, but, but now there had been sectarian violence with the communists for years, and there were uh, refugees created by that violence. Mm -hmm. But there were also many white refugees in Beijing at the time, and most of them came from Russia. Um, the communists had just taken over, and if you weren't happy living under communist rule, or if you didn't want to uh, take on that system, they hadn't just taken... I know, I know you're looking at me like that. No, I was just wondering why you would leave Russia for China. It's, it seems like similar ideologies, no? Well, Mao Zedong hadn't taken over yet, so no. Oh, I see. You know, I have to admit that um, probably this era of Asian history is definitely... A blind spot of mine, because I don't think we were taught very much about it in no, school. For most Westerners, and I would say not just this part of history, but all of Asian history is yeah. kind of a mystery to us. I mean, I definitely have to just read up on it more myself, but... Yeah, that's we have to take that responsibility on, on ourselves. And that was part of what was fascinating uh, reading this case, you know, as I got to immerse myself in a place I was so unfamiliar with. Mm -hmm. Um 
but so many Russians fleeing the Soviet government, uh, which had been set up at the end of World War One, and of course, just, I guess, continuing violence in the aftermath of the Civil War and of the Russian Revolution. Mm-hmm. There were also some Jews, of course, and others fleeing Nazi Germany, which was starting to get scary uh, at this time, or was starting to uh, uh, complete its descent into scariness. How was China in terms of welcoming refugees, especially Jewish people? Like, was there any racism there or? Not near. It doesn't seem like there was nearly the kind of racism you would see in Europe against Jews at this time. Interesting. Um, in Europe, it seems like Jews couldn't catch a break for like, I, I don't know, most of history. <laughs> yeah. Um, but here, as long as you weren't a Russian refugee, there, I think the refugees were, pr- were mostly living pretty well. Um, it wasn't all refugees, by the way. There was your s- standard smattering for an international city of army deserters from different uh, countries, criminal fugitives from different countries, um, world travelers who just hadn't, you know, had put down roots for a little while there. Um, but everyone except the Russians uh, enjoyed the tradition of, enjoyed the privileges of extradition mm-hmm. and not having to live under Chinese laws, but being treated as citizens of their home country. Oh, I see. But the people who had fled Russia were now stateless. They had refused to become citizens of the Soviet Union, and uh, they weren't citizens of China, but they were subject to local laws while not having any local advocacy. Could they apply for citizenship or was it very difficult? I can't. Im- I don't know what the process would have been like, but I, d- <laughs> I didn't hear of a single white person applying for Chinese citizenship. Hmm. I'm sure it happens and happened. Sure. But, you know. um, so the condition of these Russians, in 1935, the League of Nations did a survey in Shanghai where they found that 22% of the Russian women living there in 1935 uh, between the ages of 16 to 45, were engaging in sex work to pay the bills. Mm. 22%. And Shanghai was much richer than Beijing was at this time. So presumably the um, economic opportunities were worse and the percentage would have been even higher in so, Beijing. That's a, it's a high percentage. It's a high percentage. And it, a lot of the time that means out-and-out prostitution, but there was also uh, something called taxi dancers at this time. You know, in the 30s, dance halls were very popular, and guys would pay women to dance with them. Oh. And maybe, yeah, I, I don't know if that then transitions into the more traditional form of sex work, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? If the date goes well, as it were. Hmm. Um, but yeah, taxi dancers. Taxi! You stand, stand out on the edge of the floor, <laughs> you just hail one. Um, now, on the other hand, most expatriates, to distinguish from refugees... Europeans who had chosen to live in China, in Beijing often had stable foreign sources of income, foreign dollars that uh, exchanged really favorably with Chinese dollars mm-hmm. and let them live above their means. We'll talk about the Snows a little later. They were journalists. They owned a racehorse at this time, just on like newspaper writer <laughs> money. Hmm. So you could live pretty well in Beijing provided you were making American dollars somehow or British pounds. Right, just something with a good transfer rate. Exactly. Now, in 1937, Edward Theodore Chalmers Werner was not making an income, but he had already retired from his uh, career, and he was settling in to uh, do what had always made him tick, which was learning. Uh, 
Werner had had a fascinating life. He was born in New Zealand to a wealthy Prussian father, and apparently his dad took the family gallivanting around the world in his youth, so he got an appreciation for foreign cultures. Um, He went back to England, again, born in New Zealand, but he went home to England to uh, attend school, but then had to seek employment after his father died um, pretty young, Mm -hmm. when Edward was still in his teens. So he put in as a cadet with the foreign office and was sent to Peking, Beijing, to learn Chinese, uh, the language that is. I, I assume they just keep saying Chinese, but I assume they mean Mandarin when they say it. Well, they're different dialects, so I don't know. I don't know what they speak in Beijing, but. I think it probably depends on who you're speaking to. Yeah. Um, so he headed to uh, Beijing to serve as a, stu- a student interpreter and learn the language. Um, It's funny to do both those things at the same time, but I guess you have to learn fast. (laughs) Sounds confusing. (laughs) (laughs) It sounds horribly confusing, but Werner found that he really liked Beijing. Uh, He took to the language and culture of China, and the whole time he lived in this city, which would be almost until his death, basically, uh, he became a fixture riding its streets alone on his bicycle. Uh, Apparently, though, he rubbed a lot of his superiors the wrong way. We'll s- While he was in the army? or a Diplomatic service. Diplomatic. Uh, we'll see later that he could be a squeaky wheel, to uh, <laughs> say the least. And a lot of the time, Werner would end up with remote postings and uh, shit ends of the stick just because he had made some superior mat. Hmm. But he made a good living. He managed uh, to marry a wealthy young woman from a good family, Gladys Ravenshaw. So... I'm- Presuming not a Chinese woman. No, no, this is a European <laughs> By that very woman, a British woman. British name. Um, Gladys Ravenjaw. And the couple eventually chose to retire to Beijing in 1914 when uh, Werner retired at 50 years old. Okay, so in 1914, he's 50. Yep, and 50 does sound young to retire. That's because this was a forced retirement. His superiors asked him to step aside after he had whacked a customs official with a whip. I don't think you whack someone with a whip. I think you whip them. He whipped him with it then. (laughs) He he assaulted a customs official with a whip during a disagreement. Tough. That's tough. In like the doing of his official duties. You know what I mean? Like like he was supposed to be diplomatic. Yeah, not very diplomatic to whip someone. Um, well, the couple settled into a quiet life, and in 1919, they adopted two-year-old Pamela from some Portuguese nuns at the local church. Pamela was assumed, we don't know who her parents were, her birth parents, but she was assumed to be the daughter of some Russian exiles due to her fair complexion and gray eyes. And a lot of orphans, I think, were the products of Russian exiles because Russians were killing themselves at an alarming rate in this city. Jesus. That's a, that's a big melting pot, too. You, got, you get a Russian daughter to British parents from Portuguese nuns in China. Yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's like New York. Um, now, unfortunately, Pamela's mother, her adoptive mother, Gladys, would die under treatment for meningitis in 1922, uh, possibly of an overdose of whatever medication they were giving her. Um, but the point is, Edward Werner dedicated himself fully to his adopted daughter after this. Aww. They spent all their time together when she was young. She was fluent by a young age in Chinese, 
and she shared her father's love for riding the city on her bike. And when she got older, into her teen years, she would do that alone, just like her father did. Was that safe for her to do alone? I mean, I guess we know how this story ends, so probably not. But... It, it depends on what parts of the city uh, you stick to. And we'll hear a little bit more about the neighborhoods around uh, Pamela in just a bit. Now, in 1937, Edward and Pamela Werner were living in a converted... Here's one of these pronunciations I don't have right. Sihuan. Might not be bad, actually. That sounds pretty good. Um, it's a traditional, like, courtyard house. If you picture any, like, an old movie set in China and people live in, in this, like, ranch-style house, but in the middle there's a yard. I think that's the kind of house that they have at the Peabody uh, Essex Museum oh, in yes. Salem. Oh, yes. That probably does have a courtyard. I'm pretty sure, yeah. Although it might be multi-story. Um, and like an open top kind of thing. Like it's open in the middle. Yeah, that's a courtyard. <laughs> I, thank you. <laughs> but they also do that. did that in Rome a lot, too. Yeah, well, they didn't have air conditioning. That's fair enough. Um, so their courtyard house was on a narrow alley just outside of the legation district. Um, and you'll remember that legations meant diplomats and stuff. So this was the diplomatic district where all the ambassadors lived. It's also where many of the expats and white refugees would gather and live. They kind of all clustered around this neighborhood. Oh, I guess the white people go over here. And they all just sort of went. Now, 72 years old, Edward passed the time lecturing at Peking University, uh, which he made a small income for, and furthering his study of Chinese dialects on long walks and rides around the city. Pretty active guy. Yeah, sounds like a pretty good retirement. Uh, Yeah. And in January, Pamela was home on holiday from Tientsin Grammar School. Uh, so a boarding school? Yes. Now, in Midnight in Peking, Paul French tells us headmaster Sidney Yates may have made sexual overtures to Pamela. Yeah. And this guy had then been forced to leave his post and was at this time preparing to return to England. Um, anyway... Werner was of a mind at the time when this all happened, Werner was of a mind to send her back to England to finish school. Like, you know, no daughter of mine. Um, but Pamela was not cool with that. She loved Beijing and she wanted to stay with her father and her friends at school. She shouldn't be punished for some creep hitting on her. Uh, that's true. But she was worried. Uh, she did stay in Beijing, but she started going. That's when she started going to Tianjin school. Mm-hmm. Um, which was in another city. I mean, it was a, a hike for her, and she had to be um, away from home. It was a boarding school. Werner sounds like a pretty protective dad. Yeah. And he was also nervous. Maybe this was part of the motivation for trying to send her back to England. He was also nervous about all of the attention his pretty young daughter was getting from young men. Uh, in fact, at the beginning, in 1931, at the beginning of this decade, um, he had broken a young Chinese man's nose with his cane outside of their house while he was accusing him of having sex with Pamela. And how old was she at this point? Well, 31 or 32, so she would have been like 14, 13 or 14. I mean, I can't blame him. <laughs> <laughs> if you really thought that was happening, she's she's very young at that point. Yeah. Um, oh, and it was after that incident. It was after the incident where he broke this young man's nose that uh, young student's name was Han Shuqing. And after poor Han's nose was broken, um, Werner pulled her out of the school. That's when he pulled her out of the school she was in and sent her to Tianjin. 
Well, I have to say, my dad was very protective, but he never broke anyone's nose. Um, so I guess point in his favor. Yeah, I, I, I never, I never feared that. Well, I had already moved out by the time I met you, so I don't think there was any. Uh... Oh, I just mean I assumed he would act with more finality <laughs> than a punch than a punch in the face with a cane. That's just because he's Italian. Now you're stereotyping. On January seventh, nineteen thirty-seven, Pamela went to the dentist in the morning for an appointment. Came home to catch up on some letter writing. You know, catch up with friends from back at school while you're home on break, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. A family servant, Ho Ying, went to the market at three p.m. And like I said, if you had a little bit of American or British money, you could live very well, right? So they had like it sounds like several servants. There was like a gatekeeper and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but Ho sounds like he was kind of the butler. I mean, he was the the, the, the his man Friday kind of yeah running situation. the house kind of guy. So Carson and Downton Abbey. Yes. So at three p.m., Ho was going to the market, which he did every day, and he asked if Pamela wanted anything. And Pam said no. She was leaving soon for the house, so she wouldn't be back when he got home with the sweetmeats or whatever it was he was offering her. Um, but she did ask him to prepare meatballs and rice for dinner, and said she'd be home by seven thirty. Meatballs and rice. That's kind of uh, that's what a it's what a European living in China eats, right? Yeah, sure. <laughs> Just it's, like it's close to Chinese food, but not quite. You guys don't do spaghetti here, huh? Mm. <laughs> All right, we'll have very short spaghettis. <laughs> now, the gatekeeper told Ho later that he had seen Pamela leave the house on her bike shortly after Ho did. Pamela made plans to meet her friend Ethel Gurevich, who was a daughter of Russian emigres, at the Wagons Litz Hotel the previous day. And uh, so after meeting up at the hotel, as planned, they went to Ethel's house, and Ethel's mother said she served the girls tea and cakes. But Pam said she wasn't hungry. Uh, she had also told Ethel, when they met at the hotel, she mentioned to Ethel that she had been at the Wagonslitz Hotel earlier that day. Hmm. But we're not sure... We're not sure exactly why. We'll get a little more detail on that later. But yeah, she, she mentioned... Well, she could have been psyched for the meatballs and just trying to keep some space in there. Well, yeah, but why would she? Why did she go to the hotel earlier? Oh, that I don't know. Right. <laughs> so around 6 p.m., Ethel and Pamela hit the skating rink with a third friend named Lillian Marinovsky, another Russian. At one point, Pamela walked away from the other two to talk to some other girl she knew at the rink, and they didn't hear what was said, Uh, but mostly the three were together the whole time. And at 7.30, Pamela said that she had to go home for dinner. Her friends say they asked if she was sure she was okay alone. It was after dark, and she was leaving on her bike. To which Pamela said, I always ride by myself, and nothing can happen to me here in Peking. Well, nothing had happened yet, Pamela. She rode away with her ice skates over her shoulder. This was the last time anyone would ever see Pamela Werner alive. How old is she at this point? 19 years old. 19. I'll show you these two pictures that were taken in the same photo shoot within a week of her death. Oh, very pretty. Mm-hmm. It's like everyone back then. She looks like she's 30 years old. Yes, even though she's 19. Yes, yeah. exactly. She looks ex- She looks so much like my grandmother. You know? <laughs> It was 8 p.m. when ETC, I, by the way, you could, he, I wonder if he ever went by Etcetera. <laughs> That's his rap name. Etcetera Warner. 
Um, when ETC got home at 8 o'clock, he was surprised to find Pamela wasn't home. He thought she was supposed to be home for dinner. Uh, they waited around until 10.30 before he asked Ho Ying to go out looking. By the time the servant got to the, to the ice rink, the workers were closing up. He asked about whether they'd seen a girl of Pamela's description, but they said there were like 200 skaters there that night, and there was no way they could pick out one individual girl. Mm-hmm. So Ho returned to the Werner residence, and ETC dismissed him for the night, and then went out searching himself with a torch, he says, until 1 a.m. And by torch, he means flashlight, because yeah. he's British. This isn't Frankenstein. Yes, that's right. Um, but he could only do it till one. I mean, he's 72 years old. I'm impressed that he did as much as he did. Mm-hmm. On January 8th, at 8 a.m., two rickshaw drivers were pulling their carts along the outer walls, the old, along the old walls of the city, when they saw a few stray dogs sniffing with interest at a bundle near the foot of the wall, now, along with an elderly man. So, I mean, the streets are pretty crowded, right, then and now in any Chinese city, I think. So, um, they were just like, hey, you, come here. (laughs) An elderly man came over, and the two drivers and the old man approached the bundle to find the body of what appeared to be a young European woman, severely cut and beaten. Why'd they ask the old guy to come over with them? He might have just been a looky-loo. Oh, okay. (laughs) All right, so... The old man ran to the nearest police box to, fo- to call the authorities while the drivers secured the scene and covered the body with a bamboo mat to try to discourage onlookers. Mm. Colonel Han Shi Chung of the Peking police was the, investi- was the supervisor on the investigation. His first thought upon arriving on scene was that this was yet another Russian white emigre em- ending it all in the face of hopelessness. Um, This was, by the way, the day after Russian Orthodox Christmas, which fit that theory nicely. Hmm. But would they often just do it in public? Um, I'll tell you one thing. Most people don't uh, commit suicide with wounds as severe as the ones that Pamela had, which was uh, something the policeman became aware of as soon as he lifted the bamboo mat. Now it looked like there was a young European woman who had been murdered in his jurisdiction. And so he thought it was best to call the legation police commissioner, W.P. Thomas, to the scene as well. So the guy in charge of the uh, white police. Mm -hmm. Pamela's skull had been fractured with several blows from a heavy, possibly smooth piece of wood or stone. And the autopsy labeled these wounds as the cause of her death. They were delivered with intense force from very close to Pamela, which led some of the investigators to suspect maybe this was someone she knew because they got up close to her, right? Mm -hmm. And attacked her with a viciousness that says maybe not random. These things are always big maybes, though. Right. There was blunt force trauma to the girl's right arm, but little hemorrhaging there. Like the bones were cracked, but but not much bruising. So that blow was likely post-mortem. Mm-hmm. And there were also several, I'm going to say several, I'm not going to say many, but I haven't seen an exact number. She was multiply s- stabbed and slashed in her trunk and belly. Interesting. So multiple weapons used. No, I think just one knife, but stabs. And no, I mean the blunt force trauma yes. and the knife. Yes. She was, she was most likely hit with something. Yes. And then a knife was used to cut her up. It's unusual. 
Um, and there was little bleeding in the stab and slash wounds. So, so probably also post-mortem. Also post-mortem. Hmm. Now here's where we get to the stuff that will really make you pause and really make you think. Several internal organs had been removed through two large slits in Pamela's belly. And most of the blood was drained from her body. Hmm. Her stomach was left behind, but I think her liver was taken and her ribs had been cracked from the inside to make room to pull her heart out through the wound. Jesus. Uh, These wounds certainly couldn't have come from the dogs uh, that were sniffing at the package and investigators noted the surgical or medical precision it would have taken to do this quickly and deliberately as the killer obviously had. Jack the Ripper styles. That's uh, yes. So that's what this calls immediately to mind because that's the same thing they say about um, those crimes where women were ripped. <laughs> yes. Uh, as I said, Pamela's stomach was still present, and that was full of half-digested Chinese food. Hmm. And she hadn't eaten at tea. She only ate a, like a, a a cookie or something at tea. So she had gotten something to eat midway between that's what investigators kind of suspected and between that and the look of her wounds they placed the time of death sometime between 10 p.m and 2 a.m werner's skirt had been loosened her silk stockings were torn and her underwear was missing Hmm. but she was wearing her overcoat and her shoes and one early working police theory was that this was evidence of moving and staging of the crime scene I guess because if you were going to sexually assault someone, they're probably naked, and then she's been clothed again. Well, was there evidence of sexual assault, like injury or anything like that? Impossible to tell if traditional sexual assault had taken place because Pamela's vagina had been repeatedly penetrated with a knife. So any, I hope that's post-mortem. So any evidence that would have been there from pre- or post-mortem sexual assault was just destroyed. Okay. Colonel Hahn's working theory was that someone sexually obsessed with Pamela had killed her, attempted to dismember the body, and then ran out of time or just gave up and dumped it there. Mm-hmm. Nobody knew who this corpse actually was, though, until ETC Werner stumbled upon the scene. Oh, no. He had woken up, left a note with Commissioner Thomas, uh, Commissioner Thomas, the guy who was on his way from legation police. Mm-hmm. Warner had gone to his office and left a note about his daughter being missing and then immediately just headed into the neighborhoods to continue his own search on foot. It's sad. As soon as he saw Pamela, he recognized her clothing and jewelry, shrieked, Pamela! And collapsed in tears next to the body. Mm. I think one of the cops was able to confirm her identity, and uh, she was autopsied by the evening. Oh, that's very sad. And so went the death of Pamela Werner. The investigation wouldn't have the time, the scope, the resources, or probably the evidence to come to a satisfying conclusion. But investigate they would, and we will get into uh, what investigators did and what Mr. Werner did after the break. All right. (laughs) 
Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey, and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. Welcome back. In our first segment, we gave you the facts of the case, the discovery of the body of poor 19-year-old Pamela Werner in Beijing, 1937. Actually, I guess we spent most of that segment just setting the scene of Beijing, 1937. Mm-hmm. Interesting place. Well, it seems like another character in this story. Ah, like Manhattan. <laughs> sure. In Manhattan. <laughs> So it was time for police to start investigating. It did look like a murder had taken place here. Yeah, I would say so. Yeah, uh, because people don't usually commit suicide by cutting themselves across the belly and then tearing out their own heart. Yeah, yeah, I would agree with that statement. And she appeared to have died from a blow to the head and then been mutilated afterward. Mm-hmm. None of it's consistent with a suicide, right? So now you're, you have a young European woman who's been murdered in Beijing, and the authorities are looking for who did it. But it was tough to investigate deaths because there was a lot of death in Beijing at this time. Mm-hmm. Bodies were routinely co- collected from the streets at a rate of like several per morning at this time in Beijing. Of... Uh- for what reason? Murder? Most of them were suicides or disease. Jeez. Um, you're going to get some overdoses, too. You can lump those in with the suicides, but there were a lot of, um, like, opium addicts who uh, and, and other uh, drug addicts of various kinds. And again, we had the, the idea of the Japanese army was, like, funneling drugs into the city or, you know, whether that was true or not. It was a problem. So that was another uh, source of deaths. Uh, Murders also happened, certainly, um, resulting from petty crime, as murders do, but also possibly provocations from the Japanese army, political murder by Kuomintang officials, um, the local nationalist army officers had been ordering just summary executions when they found drug dealers, because partially because they were supposedly working with the Japanese. So a lot of people were dying. Now, was she treated any differently because of her background? Um, Well, the investigation went differently because Beijing police worked closely from the beginning with the legation police, with Thomas's office. Um, Because while the killing had happened in Chinese jurisdiction, uh, and therefore they didn't need to work with the legation police necessarily, um, they were going to have to interview a lot of Europeans. Mm-hmm. And they figured that Thomas's office would just have friendlier relationships with foreign nationals and be able to get a little further with um, European whites. International cooperation of this kind was really rare. I mean, when we talk about serial killers 40 years after this, law enforcement agencies in the U.S. couldn't seem to agree 
Yeah, county by county. Yeah, enough to to work together to catch a guy. So the idea of these two departments that a lot of the officers probably don't speak the same languages. Um, there might be racial tension mixed in there. Yeah, but everyone involved seems to have been attacking the issue of investigating this murder from a place of good faith. Well, at least there's that. So cooperating with investigators, now from Scotland Yard, Scotland Yard was called in, Colonel Hahn got a ton of reports. A ton of people had heard about this, obviously, and a ton of people, as you always get, were interested in solving it. Um, Most of these reports were determined to be false, though. Um, In one case, early on, neighbors in the area were reporting seeing a rickshaw driver near the Fox Tower, which was uh, the wall tower where Pamela's body had been found. And this man was apparently washing a bloody seat cushion the morning after the murder. Okay, that's suspicious. Uh, Police picked the guy up. They looked into his story. And it turned out, according to the rickshaw driver, uh, a Russian expatriate and an American Marine had gotten into a fight in his cab the night before. Someone had gotten stabbed. And there you go. Just trying to clean up the blood stain. And I guess the police were like, yep, that's Beijing. Hmm. Because they didn't talk to this guy again. Okay. Um, But they did question the obvious witnesses, uh, ETC Werner and also Pamela's friends, who each corroborated each other's uh, timeline of events. Retracing the girls' steps, investigators heard from the concierge at the Wagons Litz Hotel that Pamela had come by earlier that day, between three and four. She inquired about renting a room and checked out a brochure. Is it possible she was doing sex work on the side? It is, I, well, everything's possible, right? But that seems, that particular solution seems unlikely to me because her family was well off. Yeah. She might have had friends who were involved in sex work because it seems like a lot of her friends were Russian girls who probably had poor families. Yeah, I was just thinking about why she would be renting a room and be very cagey about it. <laughs> it's never satisfactorily explained, um, but I my two kind of pet theories are maybe she wanted a little freedom from her overbearing dad and she wanted a room to stay in when she was in Beijing Mm -hmm. or maybe she wanted a boyfriend to come visit from school while she was home (laughs) and didn't want his nose to get broken and didn't want his nose to get broken so two you know those are those are two things that come to my mind but for some reason Pamela was at the hotel earlier that day Hmm. in any case by his first press conference on January 10th Colonel Han had no answers for reporters or for the public And so the public filled in the gaps with speculation, right? That's what they do. Mm -hmm. So the Fox Tower, which again was near where Pamela had been found, was long considered haunted. So more superstitious residents were like, ooh, vengeful spirits, you know, had maybe torn the girl apart for some imagined offense or because she wandered into some curse, you know. Mm -hmm. Now some especially those familiar with Werner's short fuse and his bad personal skills, suggested he had killed his own daughter in a fit of temper. Now, Scotland Yard never seems to have seriously considered this as a possibility. I mean, they saw how broken up he was when he first saw her. Was there ever any evidence of him abusing her? No. Yeah, I don't know. Even people who would like you to consider that as a possibility for this crime... Have to admit that there's no evidence. ...will not tell you that he beat his daughter, because I don't think there's any evidence for it. Okay. Now, I mentioned the Snows before. They're um, journalist neighbors. Mm Mm-hmm. So, 
Helen Foster Snow, the wife in that couple, um, raised her theory to police. She thought that it was possible the Kumantang could have assassinated Pamela, mistaking her for Helen. Oh. Did they look alike? Very similar. And in fact, the police noted how si- like she said this and they were like oh okay yeah sure lady but then they saw a picture of pamela oh, and shit <laughs> next to helen were like oh they'd look of remarkably alike interesting helen and her husband edgar snow were liberal american journalists who had been busily painting a sympathetic portrait of chinese communists especially in contrast to the nationalist kumatang who they kind of portrayed as barbarous mm-hmm. barbarous fascists um, Scotland Yard actually considered this one briefly as a possibility for the murder. Um, however, and, and there were fascist, there were um, nationalist groups around, both unofficial and official at this time, who could have done a murder like that or taken it upon themselves to do so. Um, but the fascist private organization, the Blue Shirt Society, um, and the more official, quote, military statistics bureau who both did kill chinese citizens and foreign nationals usually did their killings cleaner just a bullet to the head and dropped in a ditch if this is a political murder why do you go to all the work of ripping her heart out to make it look like it wasn't a political murder usually you want political murders to look like what they are so they inspire fear Mm -hmm. but maybe well, this seems like there's a sexual bent to it, just like Jack the Ripper. Yes, I agree. And the the police kind of agreed with you, too, and they didn't even know what a serial killer was yet. <laughs> Meanwhile, police started canvassing the nearby Badlands District. It was a uh, shady neighborhood right next to the Legation District that was full of bars and brothels. And oh, the, the Badlands were shady? I, I don't believe it. Once police were showing interest in the Badlands, a local Russian landlady revealed that she had found a bloody rag and a dagger in the possession of one of her tenants. This man, she said, was a British expatriate named Pinfold. First or last name. Well, all the local papers called him was Pinfold. Because I don't think, I don't know that police ever told the papers his full name, uh... And so in the papers, he was just Pinfold. Mm-hmm. Um, police reported on searching Pinfold's house. They found bloodstained shoes, a dagger, a sheath, and a handkerchief. All of those also covered in blood. Mm-hmm. Now, the author of Death in Peking, the second book in the last 20 years that's come out about this crime, author Graham Shepard says he tracked down a Fred Pinfold living in Beijing in 1937 um, by checking Peking's Beijing's consular registers from the 30s. So every request that was put in with a consul at the time, a foreign uh, dignitary or or whatever, and somebody, we don't even know why or who, but somebody put in a request looking for Fred Pinfold at one time. I can't imagine there were a ton of Pinfolds around. And from this, um, from this, Shepard was able to extrapolate out who this guy was. Um, apparently Pinfold's father died when he was very young. Fred ended up living uh, with an aunt in modest conditions. He worked as an electrical engineer until he moved to China in the early 1900s. 
Um, then he worked in the Shanghai Volunteer Corps before wor- returning to England to join the Canadian Army. Go figure that one. I don't know if he didn't get into the English Army. It's a very roundabout way to do things. But he did join the Canadian Expeditionary Force in England. Okay. Um, at the time, he was described as five foot seven. This is in his enlistment report, right? Five foot seven, 149 pounds, with hazel eyes and gray hair, 43 years old. Um, he rose to Lance Corporal before the end of World War I and then disappeared from any records at all as far as Shepard could find, until January 1937, hmm. when, when he became a suspect in this investigation. Did he know the family? Did he know uh, ETC, both being Brits? Uh, no, not at all, but he would become acquainted with him. <laughs> all right. Held overnight, Pinfold smoked heavily and fidgeted a lot, um, but said almost nothing. Police apparently suspected he was an opium addict, which again was very common in Beijing at the time. Mm-hmm. Apparently one officer, we shouldn't put too much weight on this, and I think one of the criticisms of Midnight in Peking is that it too often puts maybe a little too much weight on things like this. But apparently one officer claimed he recognized Pinfold as a man who had lingered a little bit longer than other passersby at the crime scene. Okay. Like, you're going to get looky-loos, right? But he, they noticed one guy was kind of looking for too long, and it was weird. <laughs> I mean... And when this guy, Pinfold, came into the police station, he was like, wait, it was you! Okay, well, that's really up to your own determination. Yeah. I mean, how long is too long to look at a corpse? 40 seconds, too long. <laughs> yeah? 100%. 35, fine. Fine. <laughs> police did find a business card in Pinfold's pocket. For a bar at the address 27 Huanban Hutong. Hutong uh, is an alley, so Huanbang is the name of the street. I'm getting that wrong, too. Um, I think you're doing a great job. When they asked Canadian officials, apparently they got word that Pinfold was a known face at 28 Huanban next door. Okay. Was that another bar? Um I think it was like a, some kind of a business because the, the 27 is referred to repeatedly as a bar. 28 is only ever referred to as 28. Hmm. But we do have a guy who worked there. Um, maybe it was a... Oh, he, I, he, he's described as a barman, maybe. Yeah, okay. I think maybe they are bars right next to each other. But 27 was a bar that doubled as a brothel late at night. Ah. There were a lot of these, as we mentioned, in the Badlands. Mm-hmm. 28, store, brothel, whatever business it was, it, or store bar, whatever business it was. I don't think that one also included a brothel. Pamela's friends told police that she usually consciously avoided walking through the Badlands for any reason. Yeah, that sounds smart. But as they were walking through the neighborhood, police noticed that that night, if she happened to be in a rush, her most direct route home from the ice rink would have taken her right past 27 and 28 Juanban. Hey, was her uh, bike found? With her or anywhere else? No, I don't think her bike ever was found. That's weird. Yeah, but you can get rid of a bike. Sure, but I mean, that means something. <laughs> yeah, but I, I don't think bikes are as recognizable as cars. No, that, that that's not really my point. Is My point is, what happened to the bike? 
Sure. Why wasn't she on the bike? Why couldn't she pedal away? You know? Right. Well, she also ate food at some point. Right. Officers raided 28 Juan Bon while Han and Richard Dennis, his opposite number over at Scotland Yard, discreetly visited 27 Juan Bon themselves. French tells us, French is the author of Midnight in Peking, nothing came of the raid on the bar, and patrons who were there who were shown Pamela's picture didn't recognize her as having been there, but they did say it was crowded on January 7th, just like the ice rink was. Mm-hmm. At number 27... Manager, possible barkeep, I think it was a bar, manager and barkeep and former U.S. Marine, Joseph Knopf, said he knew Pinfold. Yeah, I know that guy. Mm-hmm. He told police that Pinfold worked security next door at 28 Juanbon. But Knopf also said, if we can take uh, Mr. French at his, at his word, at his printed word, mm-hmm. um, Knopf also told police that Pinfold had been present at, quote, nudist weekends. What? At an exclusive club set in a cottage in Beijing's Western Hills. You know, just a big naked party. Was it like an orgy or was it like just nudist? No, just nudism. I think they would like go swimming. They would go hunting, like do some outdoor activities, but naked. They would dance and, um, you know, I mean, I'm sure there was probably sex involved, but I don't think it was fully just an orgy all weekend. Swimming and hunting were specifically mentioned. <laughs> I would not want to go hunting naked. Um, well, the guys were actually having trouble going hunting. They had to close off the hunting, and then at some point they had to close off these nudist parties because the Japanese were getting cl- too close to the city, mm-hmm. apparently. And, um, you know, you don't want to be out there uh, nude hunting deer. Caught with your pants down? Caught with, Exactly. Mm-hmm. Caught with your pants off. <laughs> The police now had something they could confront Pinfold with. And when they did, he confirmed he had, in fact, been there at some of these nudist weekends. But Pinfold said he only attended as a security guard. And he would sometimes also help recruit girls to come and dance naked for the other guests. Mm-hmm. He added that he didn't know Pamela. But he also wouldn't tell police where the blood on his knife came from. All right. You got to you gotta tell, Pinfold. You do. Um, Make something up. Yeah. They, they're, there's an air of, I don't know, there's something tricky about this whole section of the story. Yeah. It's weird. Police eventually got out of Pinfold, apparently, that these weekends had been organized by an American dentist in Beijing named Wentworth Prentice. Prentice the Dentist? Prentice the Dentist. Stop. And Prentice the Dentist mostly catered to wealthy expats and <laughs> diplomats... It's like when Michael Scott says his dentist's name is Crentis. <laughs> um, but his, his dentist's name is Prentice. It's stupid. Prentice the dentist came to <laughs> Prentice the dentist came to China with his wife and kids in 1918, but then she and the kids left in 1932. So I don't know what happened with the marriage. Well, it's not, it's not good, Sean. But uh, he was, you know, that apparently freed him up to go to all these nudist, uh, host all these nude parties. French has Richard Dennis and legation police going to interview Prentice at his flat and finding that the flat is right next to the ice rink that Pamela had been at the night before she disappeared. Interesting. 
When he heard of the police's interest in Prentice, Irish reporter George Gorman the next day took to the papers to mock police for even considering such a respectable man uh, a suspect. Hmm. Apparently, when um, Richard Dennis from the Scotland Yard looked into it, it did turn out Gorman had also participated in a few of these weekends. Ah, there's the rub. And there lies the rub. Uh, ultimately, though. Probably dis- a few rubs. Despite newspaper reports to the contrary, initially, the blood on Pinfold's knife was apparently from an animal. And they were able to tell this? And once they were, he had to be released. Hmm. Police had so also... why didn't he just say it? Wait, it's from an animal. <sighs> uh, Pinfold police found also had a second residence in the legation quarter and since he technically was a a resident of the legation quarter he couldn't be charged with a crime without british authorities also charging him with a crime and when they when the chinese police talked to the british police they all decided together there wasn't really anywhere near enough evidence to convict this guy so there was no point he had two homes in the same city yeah he was very poor though Okay. We're told he only had like his pension and then a little bit of opium dealing money, basically. (laughs) All right. Pinfold is believed to have left Beijing shortly after he was released from jail, and then he disappears from our narrative and from the historical record, as far as I can tell, altogether. Weird. Yeah. Now, throughout all of this, E.T.C. Werner was pestering police publicly and privately about the case. Local British authorities had offered a £10,000 reward for any information leading to Pamela or the killers. Mm -hmm. To which Werner complained that the reward should be available anonymously to encourage other people. He was like, you know, Chinese people don't trust their government very much. So, and they certainly don't trust our government. So no one's going to reach out for this reward because it had to be deposited into a bank account. At the end of January, after Pinfold had been released, Werner held a public press conference demanding information from the police on why Pinfold was let go. He's a squeaky wheel. He also at this point, added 5,000 Chinese gold dollars to the reward personally. This apparently more than doubled the reward, and at this point, the reward for information leading to Pamela was about triple the average income for a Chinese family for the mm. year. Mm-hmm. Werner proclaimed the killers, in his opinion, were Western. He said in this press conference that he knew all about the Chinese, and they had no folk beliefs that involved harvesting organs. Do Westerners? That's what I said. It's like, yeah, do 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 Westerners? Do white people have those? I don't think so. I think that's just a weird psychological thing. Yeah, I don't think this is a uh, cultural belief thing. Mm-hmm. As a, re- a direct result of this press conference, Richard Dennis with Scotland Yard and Colonel Han with Beijing Police were both directly ordered not to talk to Werner anymore. And in particular, Werner had directly contradicted what authorities were uh, investigating on at this point because their current feeling was the best bet was a young, sexually frustrated Chinese man. Mm-hmm. It's all swirling down or the bottom of the drain, Carrie, and you might not be able to feel it yet, but it'll all move very quickly here. Okay. On January 30th, the details of the autopsy hit the papers for the first time. This immediately increased the fear and rumor among the populace. It increased the amount of reports people were making. And 
certainly in the minds of the investigators, it made it much harder to eliminate suspects because now everyone knows everything about the case. Yeah. Meanwhile, Richard Dennis, who was having health problems, was ordered to return to his office in Tientsin by the Chinese New Year, which was 2-7. When nothing new turned up by the 7th of February, Richard Dennis had to leave, leaving Han and his people alone in the investigation. Meanwhile, they had to get to other cases. I'm sure they had less resources than Scotland Yard. Uh, They sure did. And... Chinese New Year was celebrated raucously in Beijing that year. One of the biggest parties most of these people had ever seen because many suspected this might be the last one they would ever get to celebrate. Mm. Tanks were now being driven right through the city on a regular basis. Japanese tanks. And Zero Fighters, that was the Japanese uh, fighter jet of the time. Uh, Zero Fighters would buzz, like fly low overhead and buzz the town regularly. Uh, the Japanese were calling these routine maneuvers, but they were almost exclusively and almost certainly provocations to try to get the Chinese military to fire an accidental or stray shot and get them into a war. Stressful. <laughs> the British consul in Beijing was Nicholas Fitzmaurice, and he officially closed the investigation at the end of June. At this point, it had been months since any more updates about the story had been in the papers, and so even the press conference announcing the investigation was at a close was sparsely attended. Mm. His conclusion, as best he could do, was Pamela was murdered by person or persons unknown, possibly Chinese. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I could have said that. About anyone. (laughs) Literally. Then, Fitzmaurice got on a boat and went home for his long summer vacation that he did every year. Did a couple weeks of uh, vacation. And within a couple weeks, on July 7th, the Marco Polo Bridge incident kicked off the Second Sino-Japanese War. And after that, Fitzmaurice never came back to the country at all. Mm -hmm. However, as the Japanese army moved in to occupy the city, E.T.C. Werner stayed in his little Sihuan. Yeah, I didn't see him leaving. Um, foreign governments, England and all the other ones, were urging all of their citizens to move into the legation quarter at this point where they could protect them from the Japanese army. Mm-hmm. Like, listen, we told you guys to, to probably get out, but if you haven't gotten out by now, legation quarter, please. Werner uh, refused, of course. He stayed in his little courtyard house. Uh, and while he couldn't do much of his former research under the occupation, he instead spent his time and money trying to f- convince the foreign office to reopen the case into his daughter's death and, of course, continuing to investigate on his own. Mm. But Edward's prickly nature and the bad relationships he had with basically everyone immediately um, left basically everyone at the foreign office thinking he was just looking for another excuse to attack them publicly and personally. He just wants to find who murdered his daughter. That's what he wants. Eventually, because he was, he, he did so much like coming up and knocking on their door and calling and said, probably not calling, there weren't phones. Uh, there weren't phones widely available in uh, Beijing. Eventually, he badgered the Foreign Service so much, they just banned him from the legation quarter. Okay, or you could do your job, but okay. They were trying to get him to live there, and then they were like, you know what, don't even come here anymore. <sighs> so he was collecting evidence on his own. Um, 
and he would continually put this in letters to uh, uh, members of the Foreign Service and the British Consulate, just like, look, I, I'm, I'm uncovering more details. You guys got to join me on this. Mm-hmm. Get in on this. He found that the brothel slash bar at 28 Quan Ban had closed right after the murder. Closed, like, permanently? Yeah, and the owners left town for Nanjing or Shanghai or... Um, he couldn't really be sure. Mm-hmm. That's a th- that's a theme. <laughs> he couldn't he couldn't be sure, but he sure. thinks. Here's another one. This is a a, bo- a bombshell. That rickshaw driver I told you about before with the bloody seat cushion. Mm-hmm. Werner said that that guy told him it was actually stained when he picked up two men and a young European woman wrapped in a sheet who seemed to need help moving. Why did he lie about it? The driver said it was her blood on the seat and that Han, Colonel Han, had lied about what he had told him. Oh. Now, Werner actually marched up to the British consul with this rickshaw driver. <laughs> you know, he's not allowed in the legation court, but he doesn't care. He's, yeah, he's he marching this rickshaw shit. driver through the street. Um, the consulate found the driver uncredible as a witness. <sighs> Now, Prentice, the dentist. <laughs> Stupid. One of the things he had told police, apparently in, in their interview, was that he had never treated Pamela Werner. Never, didn't know her, had never met her, never mm-hmm. treated her. Werner produced a receipt from Prentice for straightening a few of Pamela's rear teeth, mm. apparently just over a month before the murder. So he had, in fact, done work on her mouth. Yeah. Meanwhile, Werner had been... Pe- pestering police this whole time to get his daughter's clothes and effects back. They still had them. And when they finally do, the clothes hadn't been well-maintained. The police had never fingerprinted them, and they hadn't been kept in bags or anything. It was pointless to try to fingerprint them now. Mm -hmm. But Werner did read his daughter's diary and found that last summer, Pamela claimed, she had gone to Western Hills for a weekend. That's where the nudist weekends supposedly were. With Gorman and his family. Gorman, the Irish reporter. And on this occasion, Gorman made sexual advances toward her. There, I, it wasn't a nudist weekend? No, I don't think so. Not in the diary. It's not described that way. And, and I, it, she doesn't mention going to a, you know, fancy cottage or anything. So many twists. Okay. So many twists and turns. Um, it is worth noting, we do know Pamela knew Gorman and his wife. The day before she was murdered, she had stopped by their house for tea. Mm-hmm. Not her dad, just her. So Werner's theory. Well, you do you know what Werner's theory is at this point? No, I have no idea. <laughs> so Werner thinks that Prentice the dentist. Do you think he was ever a dentist's apprentice? <laughs> Prentice the dentist, the dentist's apprentice. <laughs> yeah. Um, he was a missionary. I think he was a. Uh, I think he came over as a Methodist missionary. Hmm. Um. Which, I don't, know if, I don't know how well that jives with the nudist weekends, but sometimes they surprise you. Mm. Werner's theory was that Prentice the dentist, Knopf the marine, possibly Gorman, the newspaper man, and the rest of the nude weekends gang lured Pamela into a Christmas party, quote unquote, at 28 Juan Ban Hutong in order to have sex with her. Mm-hmm. He reasons that Pamela would have refused and in the midst of a struggle, could have been hit in the head. Now, one day, a couple years after the murder, Werner was walking down, um, what's the street called? Juan Ban Hutong, 
And he saw that the door to 28 was just open. Mind you, it wasn't the same bar anymore. They had closed down. So it's an abandoned building at this point. But he, the door was just wide open, so he walked in. Mm-hmm. And he says when he went there, he noticed there was one wooden chair that had a broken leg that had to be replaced with a metal like strut. So he was like, I bet it was that chair. I mean, it's, it's a, a bar. It's a stretch. I'm sure they break chairs a lot. It's a stretch, Werner. Um, after Pamela's death, the killers would have, after Pamela's presumably accidental death, the killers would have transported her to the Fox Tower and mutilated her body with a hunting knife. Now, I, to, I don't know to if that what, part's for the sick thrill of yeah, it. Yeah, to what end? Like, just to cover up the motive for killing her or, like, the accidental nature of the murder? With the way Werner writes about these guys, he thinks... He's utterly taken aback at the idea of... It seems like the word nudity really makes him blush. Well, especially in relation to his daughter. Right, but I mean, when he's talking about these, uh, this dentist going off into the woods and, and playing nude with his friends... He thinks these people are real. He keeps calling them sexualists. Okay. Um, so he thinks they're like really perverse people. And I think in his mind, it's just like a, a little little hop, skip, and a jump from nudist weekend to, yeah, of course you like cutting open a, a nude young girl. Mm-hmm. They're sick, obviously. Mm-hmm. He was still investigating, still dedicating all of his time to this in December of 1941. When, after Pearl Harbor was attacked and the U.S. got into the war, Werner finally was forced to move into the legation district with the rest of the Americans. In 1943, the Japanese army finally moved all remaining residents of the legation quarter, including both Werner and his now archenemy Prentice the Dentist, awkward, into a Japanese internment camp in Shandong for the rest of the war. While living in the camp, Warner could apparently often be heard berating and confronting Prentice about the murder of his daughter. Although some fellow camp interns say that Prentice was not the only one that Warner accused. What a weird situation. And they, they lived in the next building to each other. They were neighbors. <laughs> it was like block 23, block 24, something like that. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, Richard Dennis had, from Scotland Yard had become the police chief in Tientsin until the Japanese removed him and imprisoned him for months of solitary confinement and torture. He would later get out somehow with the help of the Swiss consulate, and then he worked a British Army desk job for a while. And finally, after the war, returned to Japan to participate in the war crimes trials of some of his former Japanese captors. Mm-hmm. Which has got to feel kind of good. Yeah. In 1945, with the war over, E.T.C. Werner returned to Peking. He immediately resumed pestering British officials (laughs) about his daughter's case. In 1951, though, he returned home to England to spend his last few years, and in 1954, he died there. Pamela's murder was mentioned in passing in his obituary, And that was the last time in the 20th century any prominently published source would mention the crime anywhere. Hmm. Well, he was the one really keeping the fires burning in terms of that. Yeah, absolutely. But it's not even like there were waves of true crime interest, you know what I mean? But this never got kicked up again until 2011 Hmm. when Paul French published Midnight in Peking, 
Apparently, he had uncovered some documents when he was looking through China's national archives, including a 150-page letter from ETC Warner to investigators. And um, so French found Werner's implication of Prentice and Co. to be the likeliest explanation for the murder, and he spends his book um, selling you that that uh, uh, version of events. Mm-hmm. And how do you feel about it? Well, French has come under a lot of criticism. And I have criticism of both of the books uh, that have been written on this, on this topic, both the books that I read for this topic. Um, let's talk about what people say about French first. Um, some have said that the sourcing in this Midnight in Peking book is too reliant on Werner's letters and Werner's investigation and what Werner says he saw. Doesn't seem to be like there's a lot of primary documents or evidence well, there, other than that. There though. aren't, but I guess the problem with Werner is people have argued that he's an unreliable narrator in this case because he's so close to the case. Because he's a possible suspect in the case, being the girl's dad, and because nobody likes him. I don't know why that part factors in so heavily. But <laughs> well, the... more that he's obsessed with grief. Yes. If he didn't commit the murder, which I don't think make would make sense. Now these... Uh, go ahead. So, yeah, I mean, anyone who's so just dedicated to trying to find the answer. I mean, he's he's going to be obsessed by it and um he's going to be so desperate to solve this question that you know, maybe he's not being diligent in every sense of the word. Yeah. Now these criticisms come primarily from Pamela Werner murderpeking.com, which from what I can tell used to be a website run by the descendants of some of the people French was implicating. Like the dentist. Prentice, the dentist. But it's hard to tell more than that. Prentice's descendants. Prentice's Prentice's apprentice dentist descendants. (laughs) It's hard to tell more than that because that site now exclusively advertises the later book, A Death in Peking, by former cop Graham Shepard. Interesting. Well, either he bought the domain or he bought them. (laughs) Or they bought him, right? I mean, it could be because his book, A Death in Peking... um, if Prentice didn't do it. Well, no, it's A Death in Peking, Who Really Killed Pamela Werner mm-hmm. is the uh, title of the book. He, it reads like this guy Shepard read Midnight in Peking and had some of the same thoughts that I have about it, but much angrier. <laughs> and he spends his entire, like every paragraph is specifically directed as a takedown of uh, Midnight in Peking. Hmm. So these two books are in a fight together. Interesting. Now, Shepard's book has also been published as Life and Death in Old Peking. I think it's. I, th- I think it was initially maybe from a Chinese publisher and then a smaller Western publisher. Um, he says he read Midnight in Peking and immediately spent three years researching his own book because he was sure French was leaving something on the table by depending so hard on Werner. Mm-hmm. But again, I don't know. I just want to make make it clear that I don't know if this guy was hired by the descendants of the dentist, the descendants of Prentice the dentist, <laughs> to clear their um, you know ancestor's name or right. There's a weird overlap there that you can't explain. Right. So I think both of these books have uh, problems with um, trustworthiness. A little bit enough so that I would recommend if you want to know more about this case, maybe read both of these and uh, see where you fall because mm-hmm. the two books are fighting with each other. 
Um, a death in Peking offers alternate theories. Certainly, as we've mentioned before, Carrie, and this is kind of where my mind goes immediately with this case, um, the body mutilation calls psychosexual serial killers like Jack the Ripper to mind. Mm-hmm. And records of crimes against Chinese residents of Beijing at the time are missing. I mean, it's possible they were never kept, but we certainly don't have... Well, again, there was a, there was a war. Yeah. There was, you know, occupying forces. It's they possible might have they burned. were kept and then destroyed by the yeah. Japanese, yes. Mm-hmm. So we don't know, right, if there were other crimes similar to this. Yeah. We know about Pamela because she was white. Yeah, and there were different records there. So that's interesting. Mm-hmm. And after the fact, certainly the city fell into chaos. So if this was a serial murderer, maybe they died. Maybe they went somewhere else. Well, I feel like if there were similar um, crimes to this and they just had happened to Chinese people, Warner would have noted that. That would have been something that he would have investigated. Like, oh, this other person was murdered and their heart was taken. Maybe I should follow this thread. I mean, but only He seemed if, pretty diligent about following everything else up. But only if he knew about it. It seems like... To be honest, it seems like part of the reason the police were so interested in investigating this case is because a European woman had been killed in their yeah, I suppose. Um, jurisdiction. And I think Russian and Chinese people were being found dead on the streets literally every day in Beijing at this time, and, and there's no way Werner would have known the cause of death of all of them. Mm-hmm. Or police. Any individual cop, you know. Now, several, according to Death in Peking, several British academics and diplomats living in Beijing at the time believed the Japanese army had killed Pamela. Hmm. And this, this is a much bigger jump to me than believing that, say, the Kuomintang had done it because she looked like snow. Mm-hmm. Um, because this would, be, would have been Pamela was the target of the murder in revenge against the consul, Fitzmaurice. Oh, I was just thinking, you know, just to instigate shit like they were doing. Well, they were doing stuff like that. That's true. Um, but this is another one of these false flaggy. I told you this is kind of a um, running theme for the Japanese army, especially in this region at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, the Sakasi incident. Sakasi, probably. The Sakasi incident. Uh, the Japanese claimed that two soldiers, I think Sakasi was the name of one of the guys who supposedly died, um, had been killed by British legation guards. Remember how everybody was allowed to have some some soldiers in the country? So the mm-hmm. Japanese claimed a few of their guys had been killed by unprovoked attack from British soldiers. The British refused to prosecute the two soldiers, the Japanese pointed out. Um, but the British say they were never even shown any bodies. Mm. And that the Japanese were just trying to provoke some kind of a reaction. I don't know. I don't think it's as crazy as... I mean, there. I don't think there's any direct revenge thing going on, but they're obviously doing some stuff to provoke. I could see them murdering a white person knowing that it'll be in the news as heavily as it was and then making it a really grotesque murder to, to drum up fear and all that stuff. Yeah. Doesn't seem too far away from what they were already doing, trying to provoke fear. But a revenge or political murder, you would assume, again, the bullet behind the back of the ear. But you're saying, like, if, it, if it's to create fear in the streets or whatever. Yeah, you, you mutilate. Um, now, with the Japanese theory, which was more popular than I would have thought uh, in, in, in the English parts of the city at the time. 
and referring to the belly cuts on Pamela, uh, one of the one di- one British diplomat said to another, "As you will know, there are traditions of this sort of thing in Bushido." I know why you're laughing. Asian honor. Yeah. Um, for anyone who, boy, oh boy, how do um, we even describe this? We'll cover the the Rebecca Zahau killing probably on this uh, podcast at some point. Cause it's a fascinating story. Oh yeah, we have a we have a book on it, so we're definitely going to cover it. Um, but there is an unsolved mysteries or just a, a mini series. What was it? It was a mini series. Death at the mansion uh, about that, and at one point, so this woman died, um, and she was from an island. Well, she was Filipino. Yeah, of some kind. I think she was Filipino. I yeah. think she was Filipino. And so she had this rich boyfriend. And when she dies, you know, what, the whole point is, is it suicide or not? But when she died, she had just done something the day before that people thought she would be uh, guilty or de- ashamed of. Despondent. Despondent. And so um, when this guy's her boyfriend, when the brother walks into the hospital room... um. He says, what do you mean? Why would she have done this? And the, the boyfriend just goes like, Asian honor. With, with, a, uh, with a, be- a belly cut motion. Yeah. And so that, that's always stuck with us after watching that. Is like, that's the craziest response uh, ever death to your girlfriend possibly killing herself. Yeah, well, Asian honor. Yeah, a very much a shrug and a sigh kind of thing. So that very that came to my mind here. With there are traditions of this sort of thing in Bushido. Yeah. Now Richard Dennis believed that Pamela had been killed. His like most likely suspect. He didn't have an obviously enough evidence to arrest the guy. Um, actually, Shepard points out the author of the second book points out that we don't know they didn't try to arrest this guy but we know they didn't arrest han shu ching pamela's old boyfriend the same one whose nose werner had broken mm-hmm. i guess the two two were still friends he still lived in um, beijing and and was seen around um, but shortly after this murder according to werner anyway uh he vanished for a little while and then came back hmm Werner also says Shu Ching was, quote, later murdered by some Japanese in oh. an unrelated matter. Um, but he doesn't, again, appear to ever have been arrested for the crime. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, that was what Scotland Yard liked was, the, if not that guy, then some, they got very interested when Werner was like, I broke this young ruffian's nose. <laughs> right. They were like, oh, you did, did you? Um, but failing that, maybe another sexually frustrated young Chinese man was kind of their working theory. And the reason I say Chinese man specifically is there were just not a lot of, there weren't a lot of women in the city, but there especially were not a lot of Chinese women in the city. Mm-hmm. Um, so like those That's Russian, those Russian prostitutes we mentioned were uh, especially popular with young uh, Chinese men who didn't have a lot of women in the area. Hmm. That doesn't mean that they go murder. <laughs> Right, right. yeah, it's, it's a bit of a leap. That was one of those part of the police uh, theories. By the way, around 1941, Werner also definitely mentioned this theory. He was writing a letter to uh, one of the, it's one of his many like pestering letters to the consulate. He was like, I no longer think it was Prentice. Now oh. I think it was Han Shu Ching, <laughs> an old school friend of mine. And he talks about how he broke the guy's nose. And it's like, we know you broke the guy's nose, Werner. Yeah. 
Um, Shepard also brings up, again, Werner's own violent temper. Now, as you point out, there's no evidence anywhere that he ever hurt his daughter. Mm-hmm. And in fact, she seems to have kind of been the center of his world. Right. So I don't buy a, a fit of rage where Werner accidentally kills her, but um, both authors at least mention the possibility. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's something you have to investigate, but it doesn't seem like there's much there there. Yeah. Now, Graham Shepard, spoiler alert here, I guess, in Death in Peking, Graham Shepard ultimately concludes that the most likely suspect to him is Han Shu Ching acting as a... Um, you know, lone assailant. Either still sexually obsessed with her and or getting revenge on her father in right. some way. But I, I do think the nose beating incident had happened a couple of years before. So I don't... Yeah, well, it was when she was like 13 or 14, right? And now she was Well, 19. the 13, 14, that's me doing some math. But uh, yes, I yeah. think it was earlier in the decade. Yeah, so it seems like a bit of a grudge to hold if that's the thing. But if he's still, you know, obsessed with her, if he was even at all initially. Right. Yeah. I don't know. So that's all we have to go on with this case. And my, well, let me get your gut first, Carrie. Oh, God, I don't even know. Um, It's suspicious that there were so many, like, lies told. Like, why didn't the guy just say it was animal blood on his knife? Why? Like, who was lying in the case of the rickshaw driver? Was it the rickshaw driver initially? Or was it the um, Chinese investigator? Uh, And uh, Prentice, the dentist, um, why would he lie about never having seen Pamela before? Now, I would imagine dentists don't know every single one of their patients right but this doesn't seem like a situation where he had like an office with with multiple secretaries and he's always seeing people he seems to be more dealing with people directly right Uh, i can't be sure i have no idea about that but it's it's not totally clear to me that scotland yard i think several okay so this is where the book the two books fight Yes. Shepard says that several of the interrogation, police interrogation interview scenes that happen in Midnight in Peking, there's just no evidence that they happened at all. Like, I guess there's no record of uh, the guy from Scotland Yard. There's no record of Dennis interviewing anyone in this case. Han conducted interviews, but there's no record Mm -hmm. Dennis did. So if Han was supposedly the guy who got the information from apprentice about the uh well why would han have done the interviews if scotland yard was brought in to do interviews with european people including like prentice and and all these other people yeah no you're right and and there's a lot weird and i have to say if one of the books feels slapdash in its presentation it's not midnight in peking it would be the one that's kind of responding to it yeah the later one Gosh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I do believe the guy spent three years doing research. I'm not saying that it feels like his research was slapdash, but um, I I might not agree with all his conclusions either, is is I guess what I'm saying. Yeah, I think Prentice, the dentist, is suspicious, and I also think the ex-boyfriend, you know, just in general, is always going to be suspicious, especially when he has this kind of established antagonistic relationship with the father. Graham Shepard doesn't think the nude weekends happened at all. He thinks those are a figment of Werner's imagination. (laughs) Is the only proof we have or or any reference of that 
from Werner or were there other records from like interviews? Well, it gets shaky, right? Because the only primary sources that I can look at from the internet are newspaper reports when you pull them up. Yeah. When you can pull them up. And the newspapers that I have seen don't distinguish really where they're getting the nude weekend thing yeah, is from. It, they, is it they say that him this, writing into them or is it actually from the cops? Right. We have it on good authority that Pinfold told <sighs> investigators, et cetera, et cetera. Um, oh yeah, Pinfold. I don't know. There's just so many, now, there's so many loose threads and my, my so gut, many things were probably destroyed in the war that we could never get a real full conclusion about this. My gut is the nudist parties were going on. I don't think that Pamela Werner or her death had anything to do with them. Mm-hmm. People uh, be freaky. I mean, it doesn't, you know, why not there be nudist parties? It could be just completely unrelated. Well, but also like occasional nudist parties is different too than like the, it, it makes it sound like there's some kind of like a bacchanalia society <laughs> that's out there doing rituals. You know I don't I mean? know. Um, so I think the, here's the truth. The similarity of the crime itself to the Ripper murders and the fact that we have such bad records for crime in the city before and after this immediate event. Mm-hmm. And the fact that after this, we have an easy explanation for why anyone could have died or disappeared. Um, I just feel like it certainly could have been a sexually frustrated or uh, either directly frustrated with, by his relationship with Pamela or uh, sexually frustrated in general in like an incel kind of a way. Um, it could have been that, but I could just as easily, just 100% as easily, uh, believe that it's a psychosexual serial murderer. Well, it feels sexually motivated unless, like I said before, that was to throw you off, right? Because that's the, a possibility. Um, and we have just as much proof for that as we do anything else. But the nature of the murder, well, not the murder, because that was blunt force trauma, but the nature of the injuries and the mutilation of the body feels very psychosexual. So it could be an ex-boyfriend or it could be a dentist that just recently had this girl in and became obsessed with her. Um, I don't know what I believe in more. I think there are definitely missing puzzle pieces here. Very, very big ones. I think there's other bodies because I don't think the first time you kill someone, you pull their heart out through their ribs. Yeah, you got a point there. Unless you've been planning this in some fashion, unless this is very, very focused. But usually in in cases like this, this wouldn't be the only time this happens. You work up to this killing. Unless it's it's so targeted, but I don't know. I just don't know. I what I'll tell you a hundred percent. What I don't buy is the initial police conclusion that somebody was trying to dismember the body. No, starting no, it with seems, <laughs> like it seems like the, they were taking out stuff that they they knew they wanted. Yeah, like I, I I just love the idea of like yeah, let's start with the liver and the heart. That'll make her a little smaller. Yeah, like, no. Why? <laughs> you start with the arms and legs, surely. Yeah. <laughs> So yeah, I, I honestly, I feel like there are some really big pieces missing here and we're never going to really know. It's from 1937. Unless we like miraculously discover a bunch of records in someone's basement or whatever. Now, um, I believe both uh, authors admit fully own in their books the fact that 
none of these people could be convicted for this crime yeah. now, right, on modern standards of evidence and stuff. Um, there's no beyond a shadow of a reasonable doubt here. We just have to... Well, I can also uh, relate to, well, not relate, appreciate or empathize with uh, Prentice's descendants that they wouldn't want to be associated with a, a serial killer. They of don't course. want their ancestor to be, you know, called like this terrible sexual murderer. Uh, some people are fine with that, uh, as we'll see when we cover H.H. H. Holmes and the Black Dahlia. But um, probably, most people don't want to be related to murderers. And probably Jack the Ripper. I mean, if they knew, mm. if they knew. <laughs> they could be the same person. We'll talk about it. Soon. Oh. Hello, this is Dr. Grande the host of True Crime Psychology and Personality. On my podcast, I explore and explain the pathology behind some of the most horrendous crimes and those who commit them. We discuss topics like narcissism, psychopathy, sociopathy, and antisocial personality disorder from a scientifically informed perspective. What is a narcissist? How do you spot a sociopath? What signs can you look for to protect yourself from these dangerous personalities? It's not just about the stories, but also the science and psychology behind them. So if you're interested in true crime or mental health, I'd encourage you to give my show a listen wherever you get podcasts. It's true crime time. This week, we have a rare update to one of our earliest cases. Way back in episode 9, we covered the mysterious death of the Somerton Man, yes! a John Doe who died in Australia 73 years ago. We recently reported that they were exhuming the body for testing, and it looks like there have been some fruitful results. I know! The results are back! I can't do an Australian. <laughs> Via the New York Times, this update does not come from the South Australian police, but rather researchers, including a... Australian professor of biomedical engineering who has studied the case for over a decade, and an American genetic genealogist whose company works on cold cases in many countries. The pair, Dr. Derek Abbott and Dr. Colleen Fitzpatrick, were able to extract DNA from a hair that had been pulled from the dead man's face via a plaster cast death mask made when his body was first discovered in 1948. That's awesome. Do they do death masks anymore, or is it just a photograph now? I don't know. I ha- I want a death mask for sure. I'll do. I'll do one. Um, but you're Thanks. gonna. But you're gonna outlive me, so uh, uh, it's not gonna matter. Um, I'll, I'll. I'll tell you what. When I do die, I'll just leave out a vat of wax. So eventually, you know. Okay. Um, Doctor Dar- Derek Abbott, we mentioned in our Summerton Man episode, right? We did. Using GED Match, a genealogical research site that was also used in the Golden State Killer case, they found a distant cousin on the Sermonton man's paternal side. They then built out a family tree of more than 4,000 people. Wow. They soon realized that a man in the tree named Carl Webb, who went by Charles, had no date or documentation of death. They also found that Webb was born in 1905 in Victoria, the state that the police in the 40s believed the Somerton man was from, and he had also worked as an electrical engineer and instrument maker. His sister was also married to a man named Thomas Keene, and the name T. Keene, or just Keene, 
had been found written on a laundry bag and some clothing that was in the Somerton man's possession. Oh my God. So he stole his brother-in-law's... Uh, <laughs> or he was just wearing bag. It. So working further with the DNA, they then traced the man through his mother's line to find a living relative and triangulate a match. Said Dr. Fitzpatrick... In all this soup and ocean of DNA cousins, we were able to connect one of them to Carl's father and one of them to Carl's mother. You really kind of narrow it down so much, it could be any one of Carl's siblings, but Carl is the one with no documented death. Wow. So again, this hasn't been verified by police, and it still gives no cause of death for the Somerton man, nor what led to that death, but perhaps now we can finally begin to call him Carl Webb. Or Charles, as he seemed to prefer. Charlie. I'm going with Charlie. (laughs) And I'm going to finish the story off with a really cute bit from the New York Times article that I think we've mentioned previously, but it's just so adorable. Quote, their conclusion does knock out one theory that had entangled Dr. Abbott's personal life with the Somerton mystery. In 2009, he tried to find a woman whom the police interviewed in their original investigation because of a phone number in the poetry book. She had died, however, as had her son, a professional ballet dancer whose distinctive teeth and ears resembled the Somerton man's. Dr. Abbott managed to interview that man's daughter, Rachel Egan, a meeting that led to courtship and then marriage in 2010. Yeah, this is, I mean, we talked about this family that apparently has nothing to do with the case extensively in our uh, uh, Tamam Should. Is that episode called Somerton Man or Tamam Should for people who, oh. Tamam Should, Mystery of the Somerton Man, something like that. Go looking. Yeah. Now, if the researchers are correct and was indeed Charles Webb, whose body was found on the beach all those decades ago, those physical features were just a bizarre coincidence, and Miss Egan is not the granddaughter of the Somerton man. I'm waiting for Derek to file divorce papers, she said. Her husband offered a quick clarification. She's kidding, he said. Oh, they sound like us. Yeah, they're very cute. You wouldn't be kidding. Well, I would, I would be concerned that you weren't interested anymore in my uh, lineage. But um, no, it's very, very adorable. And, you know, if, if the police do say this is definitely the guy, we'll let you guys know. But this is uh, very interesting for sure. Well, it sounds like it definitely is. Sounds pretty, pretty reasonable. Yeah. Well, we only thought it was Egan's grandfather because of some more circumstantial genetic evidence. I don't know. I still think the Somerton man was a spy that uh, knocked up this lady. Oh, we can't, we had a beautiful story. We can now we now we can do the movie. Yeah, it's true. That's it for this episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Ain't It Scary and check out our website at aintitscary.com. You can support the show by supporting our sponsors and becoming a patron at www.patreon.com slash ain't it scary. And please subscribe to the show and throw us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and also now on Spotify. We'll be forever grateful. We certainly will. And as always, we offer special thanks to our beloved top-tier patrons. Nate Curtis, Sean O'Donnell, Jared Chamberlain, Maria Ferrante, Robin McCabe, Comfy Mike, Alex Nakutis, Ryan Regan, Christy Atchison, and Ira. We love you guys. (laughs) See you next Thursday. Show created by Sean and Carrie McCabe, music by Kyle Ryan, and you can find Kyle at his YouTube channel, Music is a Verb, seldom updated, but still good. (laughs) Ain't It Scary has been brought to you by Killer Podcasts and is a production of Longboy Media. One of Scotland's most notorious unsolved murders. 
To think that someone could turn a cheese wire into a garrote and take someone's life. The level of violence, the uncertainty and the randomness frightened people. She always thought the killer was going to come back after her. Society needs to find that killer. Who is the cheese wire killer? Listen to the full series now, wherever you get your podcasts.